0: Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 3, Episode 22.
1: Three. Liam watched Francis flit. There was no other word for it. He was watching her flit across the room, back and forth between her machine, her computer, and the circle drawn on the floor that was somehow trapping a half-manifested demon and preventing it from destroying the city of London and the rest of the world. And okay, he had to allow that the shifting thing didn't seem to be going anywhere at the moment, but he wasn't sure that he believed some marks on the ground actually had it confined. He would have felt better if Asanti had at least drawn the damn thing in permanent ink. But the point was, Francis flitting. And maybe he should have been disturbed that she was flitting around on tentacles, but honestly, after all his years with Team 3, and especially now that he had his memories of his time with the network back, Liam had seen some really strange things. A woman who was some kind of reptilian octopus from the hips down barely made his personal top ten. No, what was bugging Liam was how gosh-darned happy Francis seemed to be about the fact that they were all hiding in a boiler room with a demonic monster from another dimension. He tried to point this out to her, but Francis was stubbornly obtuse to his point. We really do need a better term than demon for these creatures. I mean, the Catholic Church has used demonic at various points in history to refer to everything from supernatural manifestations to ideas they don't like to disease. In this case, I don't even know that creature would be appropriate. Surely, fixed physical form isn't necessarily part of the definition in our work, but I haven't seen anything that indicates the city-eater has responses more sophisticated than reflex, let alone a coherent sense of self. Something in that last sentence snagged at Liam's attention. Reflex, are you experimenting on that thing? He had a sudden vision of Francis looking for a knee on the shadow so she could tap it with a hammer. Francis scoffed. Of course not, it's in a sealed and warded circle. I'm just observing. She let out a small sigh. It's a shame, but even so, this is an amazing opportunity to learn. She moved to return to her machine. Liam interposed himself between her and it. The only thing we need to be learning about something called a city eater is how to send it back where it came from and keep any more from following after. Francis easily skirted around him. For a woman who spent most of her time in a wheelchair, she sure could move when she was out of it, and adjusted a brass ring on the base of her device. That is both simplistic and short-sighted. Well, maybe I'm just a simple man. Liam cut himself off. He hadn't gotten this close to Francis's contraption before, and now that he was he noticed something that made his blood run cold. From a distance, the machine looked like some kind of hacked together orb knockoff, which was disturbing enough, but now that he could see into the guts of it. Is that a circuit board, he asked. He leaned closer and felt a shiver dance across his skin. Even from a foot away, Liam took a step back. Francis didn't look up from her notes. Probably, there are several melded with the internal mechanics. The original builders had more precious metals, but they didn't have access to the kind of technology we do now. Yeah, that was pretty much what Liam had been afraid she was going to say. I suppose you tinkered with your laptop, too. Francis was staring at him openly now. Of course I did. I had to harden all the components or it wouldn't be any use at all this close to the machine. I saw in addition to building a new version of a magical device when we still don't understand how the original works, He also decided to go ahead and make it a technomantic machine. You know, for shits and giggles, because that hasn't gone horribly wrong every other time someone has done it before. Liam could feel his voice rising and didn't bother to bring it back into check. Have you not been paying attention during the last two years? Did you not notice what turned your legs into tentacles? Francis looked back at him utterly cold. I am aware of the dangers. You're not acting like it. Why do you think I started studying the union of magic and machines? She demanded. The network is down, but they're hardly the only group out there with a similar philosophy. You may be too squeamish, but I intend to use every tool at my disposal to save the world. I've come to terms with what happened to me, Liam. You should try it sometime. This isn't about me. It's about having morals, and if you don't hold on to something, what exactly are you saving? Liam shook his head. You're trying to save us from capsizing by drilling a hole in the bottom of the boat. We might not turn over, but only because we're going to have bigger problems. Liam turned away then, but Francis added to his back, while you cling to the mast and curse the sea for being wet. Asante sat on a case of dish soap. She realized dimly that she had been staring at the patch of floor between her feet without seeing it for the last, for some number of minutes. She smelled tea. Where was that coming from? There was no tea down here. Oh, Please don't let me be having a stroke. She didn't think that she'd tapped herself that deeply to contain the creature. On the other hand, there was probably a reason why all the advice on the practice of magic she had been able to find stressed the foolhardiness of putting yourself directly into your work. Hair, blood, and other fluids were one thing. Their physical nature made it obvious how much of yourself you were using at any given moment. Otherwise, her sources warned, the first sign that you had given too much of yourself to a spell was when you passed out or died. T. She could see it now, too, when I mean, she was holding a mug in front of her. It had a picture of a dog on it. That must be where the smell had come from. It all made sense now, except she looked up. Where did you find tea? There's a staff kitchen not far from here. Perry said opening the door wouldn't hurt anything, and you look like you needed it. Asante took the mug. The tea was hot and sweet and milky. Thank you. Menchu nodded, but didn't leave. Instead he sat down on the case beside her. How long has this been going on? He asked. We got here yesterday. Francis' machine isn't something you whipped up in a few hours after you got off the plane in London. He paused. All of this, a wave of his hand took in the machine, Francis, Perry, the lines on the floor. Since the trial? Asante huffed a laugh, sending ripples across the surface of the tea. I've been working with magic for years, Sarturo. I've just been working in secret since the trial. Perry and Francis? If you want to know about their involvement, ask them. For a moment, Menchu looked like he wanted to press the point, but he let it go. So for the last year, every time Perry has suddenly shown up in a useful location, Or you just happened to have information about what we were working on. It wasn't from the orb or some book or one of your sources, was it? Sometimes it was research, just like always. Sometimes it was other kinds of research. How many times did you have information on the phenomenon that we were investigating because you had caused it? Maybe it was the aftermath of making the ward. Maybe it was the caffeine in the tea on a mostly empty stomach. Maybe after nearly a year, she was just tired of lying to him. Only once. The caves? No, I sent Perry ahead of you to learn what he could, but he didn't trigger it. He really was those poor girls. When she thought about this, the apartment building in Rome, then, with the magical servants. Asante nodded. It was a very simple spell, a test run. It all went perfectly until we found out they had changed the rules on us. Uh, the information we gained was invaluable. She followed Menchu's gaze to the creature, quiescent now, inside the circle. Was it fun for you? Menchu asked, watching us run around in circles, trying to catch up to what you already knew. No, of course not. Then why, uh, Santi? No matter what our difference is, it, it hasn't stopped us from working together for years. I thought we trusted each other. Santi sighed. She had assumed her reasons were obvious, but maybe not. Of course I trust you, but I also know you. He looked a silent question at her, and she continued. For me, the church is an employer. To you, it's a vocation. It didn't seem fair to put you in a position where you would have to choose between that and your loyalty to me. And she was silent. Liam frowned over Francis' computer. His last dabble with technomancy had led to his possession, which made him reluctant to trust his expertise on the subject, even without the giant hole that used to be in his memory. But from what he could tell, Francis had told him the truth. She was analyzing the heck out of whatever was inside Asante's circle on the floor. But what was she measuring? That was another trick entirely. Liam let his hind brain take over, scanning the numbers that scrolled across the screen while he half-listened to Sal and Perry's quiet argument in the corner of the room. I cannot believe you, Sal hissed at her brother. You've been secretly working for Asante's Operation Resurrect Team 4 this whole time? It wouldn't be much of a secret if I told you about it, Sal. That is not the point. I'm your sister. I can't protect you if you're getting up to your neck and- No. No? What do you mean, no? I, I mean it's not your job to protect me. Isn't it? Maybe you don't remember all the times you called me to bail you out. I've covered for you since we were kids, and you depend on that. Sure, when we were kids. But I'm an adult. I'm sharing my mind with a powerful supernatural being, and you still treat me like a kid. When are you going to trust me? You don't give me anything to trust. You take off for a year, then start showing up randomly on missions where you say something cryptic and swan off again. If you want trust, the road has to go both ways. Perry made a sound of exasperation, all pretense of keeping their argument at an ignorable volume long gone. You want me to be honest with you, all of you? Are you really sure? Yes, I am, you patronizing asshole. Fine. Everything Anna said back in Guatemala, it was all true. You know the story about the world being created in six days? It was a rush job, a community project. God, the angels, the demons, whatever you want to call them, we built the world because the higher-ups wanted to know how life worked. Blood, cause and effect, time, all that fun, gross, squishy stuff. And what better way to do that than to create a habitat and let it run around for a few billion years while you took notes? Asante looked first at Sal, then to Menchu. what is he talking about? Guatemala? He looked uncomfortable, not half as uncomfortable as Sal felt. Hannah told us this story when we saw her there. We didn't know what to think. She was telling the truth, Perry said. The whole truth. You could have said something then, shouted Sal. I was trying to play by the rules. Just because she went rogue doesn't mean I should. Liam half-closed his laptop screen. You're saying the whole planet is some kind of terrarium? Perry rolled his eyes. It's not just the Earth. That's your problem. You guys never think big enough. It's a universarium. A cosmic jar full of dirt and moss. After a couple millennia, the creator's lost interest, and now there's a crack in the lid and the whole thing is growing mold. The room had gone silent. No one moved, no one breathed. Sal swallowed several times before she was able to speak. When she did, her anger was already dying off. And Hannah has come to scrub out the jar, she asked. Perry shook his head, the heat was leaving him as well. Anna doesn't want to destroy Earth, but our world is leaking into yours faster and faster, your little island of sanity sinking. And she believes the only way to save the experiment is to create controlled cracks to relieve the pressure. That's what the city eater is for. She wants to just scoop London off the map, the rest of the UK, while she's at it. She believes that'll even out the pressure for a while. Sacrifice some so that the rest may live. What do you believe? Sal asked. I blushed, I was sent here to observe the experiment by living among humans. I wasn't native, I don't want to sacrifice anyone. Which was when the alarm went off, not the museum alarm. The noise was too low, too brash and cinematic. And it was coming from Francis' laptop speakers. Liam glanced down at the screen and when he looked back up, he was even paler than usual. Hey, guys, this thing isn't starving. It's getting bigger.
0: We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seehorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. And how he
1: rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
0: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Four. Liam's announcement forced the room into motion. Francis, Asante barked, what happened? I, I, I don't know. The manifestation must have found another energy source. She checked the figures that had arrested Liam's attention, then returned to the machine. Liam's right, it isn't getting smaller. Asante rose, swaying alarmingly on her feet as soon as she took her first step. Menchu caught her elbow, and a moment later, Perry had crossed the room to support her other side. Sal had a sudden and horrifying idea what, or rather who, was serving as the city eater's new source of energy. Perry reached the same conclusion at nearly the same instant. Asante's still connected to the circle. The creature must be drawing off her through it. Gets her unconnected, Menchu practically shouted. She's the only thing keeping the circle intact. Francis rushed into the cluster, gathering around Asante. If the city eater has pulled enough energy to form a physical body, the power Asanti is putting into the circle is probably the only thing keeping it from breaking out and into London. Has it? Perry asked. D- does it have a physical body in there? Why don't you stick your hand inside the circle and find out? Francis bit back. Everyone be quiet, Menchu barked. Unbelievably, they all shut up. I was impressed. We need suggestions, not questions. One at a time. While Frances tried to formulate her next argument as a statement, and Asante gathered her thoughts, Liam stepped into the gap. If Francis and I work together, I think we have enough combined expertise to keep that thing contained in the circle without Asante's support. For a little while, anyway. What well, could this a little while do us? Frances demanded. While this was technically a question, Menchu let it go. Sal guessed it was because he wanted to know the answer, too. First of all, it keeps that thing from draining us dry, said Liam. Second, it gives us a few minutes so we can be ready to kill it when it does break free. Grace cracked her knuckles. Physical manifestation means it's physically vulnerable. Does it? Minshew asked Perry. Perry made a vague shrug. Probably the city eater really wasn't my area. Sal caught Minshew's eye. Maybe it's time for you and me to clear the building, just in case. She could see him calculating the size of the museum, the number of visitors inside. It's going to take a while to get everyone out. Sal couldn't argue. He was right, but still, I'd rather get some out than none out. Menchu took in the team, the two teams, the creature and the rest of the room. Finally, he turned to Liam and Francis. All right, keep it contained as long as you can. To Grace, if they cannot do whatever you need to tear it to pieces before it can hurt anyone else. To Perry, if you are here to help us, then help. But if you cannot contain the creature, I want you all to save yourselves. Failure here only becomes irrevocable if we do not survive to make our next attempt. Sal moved to the door, and then she joined her. He reached for the knob, but Asante's voice caught them before they could leave. Are you going to call Team One? She asked. There was the briefest pause before Menchu said, no time. And then he and Sal were out of the room. It went against all of Sal's instincts to leave her team behind with the monster while she ran to safety, especially when her team included her brother, even if she wasn't sure he was quite her brother anymore. She consoled herself with the thought that it wasn't as though she would be in any less danger than they were. If they failed, nowhere in Great Britain would be safe. While the others worked, reinforcing the circle, watching Asante, calling out readings from either the computer or Francis's machine. Grace stood by the wall and watched, and waited. She was used to it. Her work was characterized by long periods of inactivity punctuated by a few seconds of action that would encompass a lifetime's excitement, surprise, and terror between one heartbeat and the next. The trouble was, you never knew when those heartbeats would occur. And so, while Grace was inactive, she was not idle. She watched her prey. In its current form, the city eater resembled a blob the size of a Doberman. Every few seconds, it would throw off a pseudopod and probe at the edge of its cage. Although, a probe implied intent, and as she watched, Grace could see no indication that the thing inside the circle had a definitive goal. Since it had been trapped, it had fed, moved, reacted, but she could see no recognizable signs of mood It did not lurk, sulk, or seethe. Grace shook her head free of such nonsense. Demons were not humans, and anthropomorphizing their motives and reactions was a tempting but dangerous trap. Grace had learned to trust the evidence before her, not theories. Turning to her other senses, Grace listened. She could hear Perry speaking. Asante, you have to let it go. You're gonna kill yourself like this. Are you ready? Asante asked. It doesn't matter. Are you ready? Frantic clacking of laptop keys and a soft click from the machine. Liam? That was Francis. As ready as we're gonna get. A pause, more clicks and whirs, Asante groaned. Okay, Francis said, that's all I can do. Let it go, Asante. There was nothing to hear, but Grace caught a whiff of sulfur and ozone and felt a tingle against her skin but it was only a passing moment and she couldn't be sure. She opened her eyes and looked at the creature. If Francis confirmed what her eyes told her, it's holding. She didn't have to add for now. Grace consciously relaxed her muscles as she readied herself. Whatever came next, she would be ready. Menchu let Sal take the lead out of the basement and into the service corridors of the museum. Do you have a plan, he asked. If we have to convince everyone in the museum individually that they need to leave, we might manage to get half a dozen civilians out the door before that creature breaks free and we all become demon food. What's the alternative? He asked. All public buildings have evacuation plans. We need to find the person who can trigger this one and persuade them. Menchu nodded. That would be my part of the plan, then. Please. There was an art to appearing as though you belonged somewhere when you had no authorization to be especially when you were in a tearing hurry. Walking without running with intent, but not panic, Manchu continued down the hall until they came across a woman wearing a blue sweater and a name tag that said Fiona. Manchu approached her. Excuse me, he said, I seem to be lost. Could you direct my colleague and me to the office of the chief administrator? Do we have an appointment? The woman startled, then smiled. Of course, father, I'm going that way myself. You're too kind. Moments later, she was leading them through the Warren of Corridors with a business-like stride. It took only half a mind for Manchu to keep up his end of their guide's innocuous small talk. Had he come far to see the director? Indeed, he had traveled all the way from Rome. Was this to do with the new international cooperative exhibit on early Christian artifacts? Yes, as a matter of fact, it was. Wasn't it a shame how the government was making everything even more complicated than it had been before? Well, naturally, but personal connections could so frequently accomplish what international agreements could not. By the time they were nearing the office of the director, she had practically created his cover story for him. And from what? He had approached her without the name of the person they were supposed to see, without even a proper title. The woman should have seen through him in an instant. Probably would have, if not for one thing. The collar around his neck, that was all she had needed to see. Menchu had always liked that. No matter where he went in the world, when people saw the collar, he had a connection. Even for people who did not have warm feelings toward the church, and there were certainly more than a few of them, the collar was a way to engage, and where there was engagement, even the thickest wall might be breached. Connecting was what Menchu was good at. He liked people, and people liked him. But after what Asante had said to him, he found himself questioning what that connection meant. When he talked to strangers, were they speaking to him, Arturo Manchu, or only to the office he represented? If Asanti, a woman he had known, worked with, and considered his closest friend for more than a decade, saw him as a cog in the great Catholic machine first, was there anyone on the planet who knew him as a person? And after so many years as a priest, was there a person left? Fiona left them with the director's personal assistant and a warm farewell. Sal waited for Fiona to vanish out of sight before flashing her badge to the befuddled PA. We need to see your boss right now. The badge was just as effective as the collar. The scream of a fire alarm echoed in the boiler room, and Grace held up a hand to shield her eyes from the flashing light above the door. Liam barely looked up from his screen. Looks like Sal and you are making progress on the evacuation. Can someone shut that off? Francis demanded. Perry waved a hand and the speaker in the room went silent, although Grace could still hear the echo of the alarm from the corridor. Thank you, said Francis. Then, no, it's surging. Before Francis could finish her sentence, it was too late. A low crackle of energy burst against Grace's skin, burning and intense for an instant before it disappeared as quickly as it had come. The lines Asante had drawn on the floor vanished with it. The city eater had escaped. Grace did not hesitate. She did not hold anything back. She pressed off the wall and leapt into the air to meet it. Five. Grace leapt at the city eater. She landed in it. But this was not like being swallowed, as she had been by the Hydra. The Hydra had been rooted in its physical body, every caustic and slimy inch of it. Neither was it like her encounter with the demon trapped by the network in Belfast. That had been incorporeal, intangible, but governed by a clear intelligence. That demon had been seductive, with obvious intent directed at her with a specific aim. This demon, Grace wasn't even sure demon was the right word. It consumed her senses, like being in deep water, out of reach of the light, only without the chill or the wet, with no sense of temperature at all. She was smothered by a solid vacuum. What had Perry said? That the jar had cracked and the demon world was leaking in? Anna hadn't unlocked a cage. She had opened a floodgate. For the first time in many years, Grace felt the clench of true fear in her gut. She had just started a fistfight with the ocean. Liam saw Grace fling herself into the air, collide with the shadow, and disappear. Asante, Francis, and Perry were shouting at each other. Francis shoved Liam away from the computer. Can you get it contained again? He asked her. I'm not sure. Can you get Grace out of there? None of these readings make any sense. I think it's still at the edge between having a physical form and not. What does that mean? I don't know. This has never happened before. The city eater, now a dense ball of shadow, getting darker and denser by the moment, roiled and grew to the size of a small horse. Liam hoped it was agitated because it had eaten something that didn't agree with it. He turned to Asante and Perry. Well, Harry was shaking his head. It isn't a creature, it's a big gob of magic that got loose. That's the technical term, is it? Not helpful, Liam, said Asante. Liam ground his teeth. Asante was one to accuse him of not being helpful, but she wasn't wrong. The big gob of magic wasn't contained. It didn't look like it was going back to being contained anytime soon. He'd deal with that later. Job one, get Grace back. He looked around for something he could use. Could he throw her a rope? There didn't seem to be any rope to hand. Plenty of fairy liquid, though. Liam took a bottle of the dish soap and chucked it in the blob's direction. It was absorbed with an audible bloop, but no other obvious effect. Liam went back to rummaging through the contents of the room. What are you doing, Liam? Asked Asante. Something, he growled, coming up from his search of one of the junk piles with a length of rebar. Liam wasn't trained in swordplay, but his early life had given him plenty of opportunities to become an expert in how to whack something really hard with a stick. And magic wasn't supposed to like iron, right? It had a familiar ring to it. Muttering a brief prayer, Liam charged the ball of shadow and swung. The bar slowed when it hit the edge of the city eater, but passed through. Liam swung again harder. It was like batting practice with a cloud. One more time. He leaned forward, putting all of his power into the swing and extending so far that his hands disappeared to the wrists inside the city eater. The iron bar hit something and stuck fast. Liam braced himself and leaned back, not sure what he had on the end of his line. He didn't care. Either it would be grace or it would be something he could kick to death once it was in range of his boots. But as he strained to pull it back, the rebar didn't budge. Liam felt his grip slipping and fought the pain roaring up his arms to tighten his fingers. A second pair of hands grabbed the bar behind his, Perry pulling two. He felt Asante's arms lock around his waist, bracing him. Behind Perry, Francis was doing the same. Together, the four of them gave one mighty pull. Grace tumbled out onto the ground, the other end of the bar still clasped in her hands. They all went down in a heap beside her. Grace coughed once, then took a great and shuddering breath. Thank you, she said, no problem. You okay? Better than I was a second ago. Liam nearly laughed with relief, but the sound died in his throat when he heard a low growl on the other side of the room. The city eater had settled on a form, the form of a tiger. A very angry tiger crouched to spring. As one, they ran. The sun was setting when Manchu and Sal found the rest of the team in the courtyard surrounding the main building of the museum. In spite of the alarms, an oppressive number of staff and tourists remained inside the fence, waiting to see if they were going to be allowed back in the building. Most of them had their phones out, taking selfies and recording each other to update the world on the latest wrinkle in their vacation. Manchu was pretty sure they were all about to find something far more fascinating to record. Assuming their phones didn't fry first. What happened in there? Sal asked Liam. It stopped chasing us somewhere in the main exhibit hall. Not sure if that's a good sign or not. Asante's dreads were falling out of their neat arrangement, giving her an uncharacteristically disheveled appearance. It's not, she said. You got distracted by some of the artifacts near the Rosetta Stone. Machu's heart sank. Hana seemed to have an affection for the oldest text she could locate, and he could only imagine what her summoned creature could find to feed upon in a place like this. A crash, followed by a screeching roar, did not exactly answer Menchu's question about what the demon had found so distracting, but it did clear up any mystery as to what the result of its detour had been. The creature that burst through the roof of the venerable British Museum was a chimera of mythological nightmares come to life. Part griffin, part sphinx, part Chinese lion, part snake that, given their luck, was probably part of an actual chimera. The crowd in the courtyard screamed as pieces of the roof rained down. Sal was shouting at people to get back, to calm down, to evacuate the area quickly and calmly. In spite of her using her best authoritative bellow, she was having a negligible effect. Flapping its mighty wings, one reptilian, one feathered, the city eater turned its serpentine neck down toward the people below. Its head looked like a cross between a bird and a dragon. It opened a hooked beak as long as Menchu's arm to reveal row upon row of gleaming teeth. Manchu could barely stand in the backwash of its wings as it descended lower and lower and drew breath to let loose, what, a mighty roar, a gout of flame? Manchu braced himself for either, for both, and then, in the distance, but closing fast, the thump of helicopter blades sliced across the sky. A cry of hope went up from the crowd, seeing what they supposed was rescue. Manchu felt sick. There was no way the people in the two approaching helicopters could know what they were facing or how to defeat it. He was one of the foremost experts in the world, and he had no idea what to do. But as the mechanical beasts approached, the demon drew back from the ground, struggling and confused, no more familiar with helicopters than the crews were with demons. The slicing rotors drew near, approaching the demon from either side, causing it to twist back and forth between them. It rose, and the helicopters followed, pinning it between them, unable to escape. The demon let out a scream so loud and discordant, Manchu felt his heart shudder under the assault. And just as the cry reached its apex, the creature shattered, bursting outward past the helicopters like a breaking murmuration. For an instant, the air was filled with a thousand wings. A heartbeat later, they were gone. The cloud ascended and split, spreading over London like a bag of feathers scattered to the winds. Manchu stared after them. Asante was at his side. I need to get back into the museum she said. All our research is still there. It's our only hope. Manchu blinked at her. Our only hope to do what? To contain it. Manchu threw up a hand toward the flock scattered across the sky. You think you can contain that? It just split into a thousand pieces, a thousand city eaters, and it's there. It's still growing. I don't know, she burst out, but we have to try. We might not be enough, but we're all the city has. Manchu took a breath then another. She was right. Away from the immediate threat of the helicopters, the thousand tiny pieces merged into an amorphous dark mist and descended on the city, vanishing behind the skyline. Not gone, retreated to gather strength. He thought he understood this rhythm. The creature would not be so easily dispatched next time. Sirens wailed out of sight. Manchu took a steadying breath. Let me find the director. He told Asante, he should be able to get us back inside. A buzz from Manchu's pocket cut him off and Manchu drew out his phone. Cardinal Fox. Asante looked up from the caller ID to meet his gaze. You could let it go to voicemail, she said. He couldn't. He was a priest getting a call from a cardinal. He had to answer, and they both knew it. Manchu cleared his throat as he brought the phone to his ear. Your eminence, he said. Team three is already on the ground. I believe we can contain the phenomenon, but there is a problem. Fox cut him off. There are several problems, father, starting with you sneaking out of the Vatican in the middle of the night and following on from there. Team one is en route to your location. I am placing Shaw in charge of this operation, and you will give her your full cooperation. Is that clear? Yes, your eminence. The instant your services are no longer required in the field, you and your entire team will return directly to Rome, whereupon you and I will have words about this little adventure of yours. It wasn't a question, but Fox paused and so Menchu repeated, yes, your eminence. Good, Menchu waited for Fox to hang up. Now was not the time to fight his superior for the last word. But Fox wasn't finished, one more thing, he said, tell Asante she's fired. And with that, the line went dead. You are listening to
0: Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm. Your portal to another world. Listen away. You can admit it. You believe in the supernatural power of the Bermuda Triangle. It's just too many coincidences, am I right? Now that we have that straight, let me tell you about a show that will fill the lost-shaped hole in your life. Introducing the Triangle. The mysticism and the intrigue of the Bermuda Triangle has just turned personal for Admiral David Zagara. His former ship, along with its crew, has gone missing in the area without a trace. This disappearance, along with other strange occurrences in the area, have convinced Admiral Zagara that the only way to learn the truth is to investigate it for himself. After getting shipwrecked on a nearby island not visible on any of their maps, his team begins to explore, only to discover they are not alone. This show is not to be missed, and you can listen to all the episodes of The Triangle right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at realm.fm. Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murray Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yac. Performed by XC Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolihi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.